From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Let's take a moment to listen to Loretta Gerusi. Back in 1982, she lived in Bear Creek, Montana, and she shared some of her memories of the global flu pandemic of 1918 with the Montana Historical Society. So many people had that flu, and young people, and they died. You know what really gets me about Loretta's voice? It's that last momentary pause when she says, so many young people, and they died. It's as if more than 60 years later, Loretta still couldn't quite believe what she'd witnessed with the scale and devastation of the 1918 flu pandemic. That disease ended up killing more than 50 million people worldwide, more than died in World War I, which was grinding towards its gruesome end. At home here in the United States, young people and children were being cut down by the flu. In Philadelphia, Louise Apuches was just a child in 1918, but she remembered watching her neighbors grieve. Directly across the street from us, a boy about seven, eight years old died. And they used to just pick you up, wrap you up in a sheet, yeah. put you in a patrol wagon. Yeah. So the mother and father screaming, let me, let me get a macaroni box before macaroni, any kind of pasta, used to come in these car, wooden boxes yes. about this long and that high, that 20 pounds of macaroni fitted in the box. Please, please, let me put them in the macaroni box. Let me put them in the box. Don't take them away like that. Louise spoke to historian Charles Hardy of Westchester University in the 1980s. So just imagine that for a moment, a mother pleading to put the body of her seven-year-old in a wooden box. Well, here we are again with another global pandemic that could achieve the scale and devastation of the 1918 flu pandemic. Could, but it doesn't have to. Because humanity also learned some very important lessons a century ago. And this hour on Point, we'll talk about what we learned from the last great global pandemic and whether we are applying those lessons now. So let's start today with Jack Beatty. He's on Point's news analyst, and he joins us, as always, from Hanover, New Hampshire. And Jack is also a profound scholar of the First World War. So, Jack, it's good to have you as always. Hello, Magna. I'm wondering... Could you just take a moment to set the stage for us? We'll talk about the pandemic in detail in a second, but I'd love to hear from you sort of where was the world geopolitically in 1918? Well, I I can do it in terms of four events, the Bolshevik Revolution, the German offensive, the Allied counteroffensive, and the elections of 1918. The Bolshevik Revolution, final really in November 1917, uh, resulted in in um, Russia withdrawing for the, from the war. Germany had been fighting a two-front war. Now Russia was out, meaning that Germany could transfer the scores of divisions that had been on the Eastern Front to the Western Front and try once more to break through the Allied lines, try before the Americans could arrive in numbers sufficient to make any German offensive impossible. So there was this desperate attempt to break the Allied lines that began with the first offensive series of them in March 1918. Coincidentally, 
that's the date of, in one record I've seen, the first uh, reported uh, case of flu mm-hmm. influenza found in the army. So two two enemies were on the loose, and uh, the the German uh, offensive uh, was a desperate battle uh, for the and the British barely it was against the British barely held on, and one reason they held on was a an inspirational uh, message they got from their leader, Douglas Haig. He wrote, There is no course open to us but to fight it out. Every position must be held to the last man. There must be no retirement with our backs to the wall. And believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight on to the end. Vera Bretan, the nurse and memoirist, said that message inspired her, inspired mm. everybody to uh, to work all the harder. Well, the Germans exhausted themselves in their offensives. When you go on the offensive, you leave your base of supplies, you force the enemy back on his supplies, and at a certain point, the 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 battle turns. And this really happened in June. When at Bella Wood, the American Marines uh, counterattacked and uh, made a very valiant blunting of the German offensive. And then from June to uh, November, we have the Allied counteroffensive, the great war winning um, uh, movement that finally uh, drove, that resulted in the. in the in the Germans suing for peace, uh, and in there someplace September, my father's ship, the USS Mount Vernon, was torpedoed in the Bay of Biscay, resulting in the largest loss of life of any uh, naval vessel in the war. My father talked about the dock at Brest, with lined with corpses, with 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 with, uh, with coffins, with flags on them, and the, the captain. Uh, so overcome that uh, his tears uh, soaked his blouse. Wow! Uh, uh, and then, and then the, and then the 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 election of 1918, which <laughs> it was a off year election. Woodrow Wilson pushed very hard for his party to win, but as our friend uh, David Kennedy uh, uh, says, the very fates seemed arrayed against the president's party. Death claimed eight Democratic senators. <laughs> thinning out their already sparse majority and turning the Senate over to the Republicans who defeated the Treaty of Versailles the next year and the League of Nations and in one famous phrase broke the heart of the world. So that election of uh, of 19, the November election was a world historic event because it meant that the Treaty of Versailles it would all come to nothing. And in fact, uh, the people had premonitions of that. It turns out that on the day of the armistice, uh, Clemenceau's daughter said to him, tell me, Papa, that you are happy. He said, I cannot say it because I am not. Mm. It will all be useless. Mm. Well, and it wasn't all that long until World War II came knocking. But it's so fascinating. 1918 is this year of sort of uh, the of a grinding global cataclysm that is the First World War coming to this slow, not really ending end, right, in in November of 1918. And then right on the heels of that, almost like perfectly overlapped, is a public health cataclysm all over the world with the so-called Spanish flu. So I want to turn now to John Barry, who is a professor uh, at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. He's author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. And he recently wrote about it once again in The New York Times in an op-ed piece. And we have a link to that at onpointradio.org. John Barry, welcome to On Point. 
Uh, thanks. Good to be with you and uh, Jack. So first of all, as, as Jack mentioned, it was March of 1918 when the I believe the first reports of, of, of a very virulent flu popped up in the United States Army. Uh, it's called the Spanish flu, but do we know where it originated? Uh, we don't. In my book, I advanced a hypothesis that it began in January in Kansas. I thought I had pretty good evidence uh, for that. But since the book was originally published some time back, and there's been a lot of research since then, uh, uh, there are hypotheses. Kansas is still barely alive as a possibility. Uh, China, Vietnam, France, or it could be somewhere else. Got the name because Spain was not at war, didn't censor its press. Its king got sick, so uh, people started writing about it. Uh, you know, a censored press, they weren't going to write anything that had any bad news uh, and became known as Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it was uh, Spain's ability to to print what it knew and not have to do it and being mindful of uh, wartime propaganda that lands it with the name of Spanish flu. But again, as Jack was saying, there were massive troop movements, right, around, uh, between North America and, and Europe at the time. And it, it, I feel like that's really important to know because it's not 2020 where it's people flying around the world, you know, not for military purposes that's helping spread coronavirus. But it was the movement of troops in 1918. It, was that sort of the primary – one of the primary vectors, John? Well, it probably accelerated it. Okay. Uh, but it would have happened anyway. Uh, as far back as the 1600s, influenza managed to make it a pandemic from, from Europe to uh, Massachusetts and and where you guys are located uh, when it took weeks to cross the ocean. Uh, So you don't need airplanes or even railroads uh, to spread an influenza pandemic. But I think the troop movements did accelerate it somewhat. Uh Well, in the United States, by June of 1917, I'm seeing here that, I mean, the Army had what? several dozen large camps in the United States, 25 to 50,000 soldiers in each one of these camps, and that in a lot of place, in a lot of those camps, the flu was tearing through the soldiers there. So how did the, how did the Army first respond? Well, first, the, the disease came in waves. The first wave was actually quite mild, or at least compared to the second wave. I give you a sense of how mild it was in the British Grand Fleet, which patrolled the coast of Europe. Over 10,000 sailors reported to sick bay, but only four of them died. So this, and they ended up getting natural immune protection when the lethal second wave came. So it, it did run through the uh, training camps in the spring. Uh, the Army really didn't do anything in an organized fashion. The medical staffs did communicate with each other from camp to camp, uh, but there weren't the social distancing uh, measures imposed, which they used later. Uh, it, it seemed more, you know, the disease had always killed more soldiers in a war than combat throughout history. In fact, one of the goals of the Army Surgeon General, who was quite a man, Gorgas, uh, was to make sure that this would be the first war when that was not the case. Uh, although because of the pandemic, it turned out that he failed by a few thousand. Hmm. So the spring wave, which hit most of the army camps, as you just mentioned, uh, actually probably benefited those soldiers. Again, there certainly were deaths. There's no question about it. Uh, But 
you know, most of the people ended up getting immune protection from from the fall wave. Okay, but then the subsequent waves, though, as you say, keep sort of pulsing, not just through the United States, but around the world, leading in that to that ultimate number of 50 million deaths. So when we come back, we're going to talk about what some measures were taken in key U.S. cities uh, that we can draw some lessons from and talk more about how we apply those lessons today regarding the coronavirus. So we are talking about the 1918 global flu pandemic. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Want to add more positivity to your podcast feed? Check out Kind World, stories of extraordinary kindness and compassion. That's Kind World. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We are talking this hour about lessons that we should be learning from the 1918 global flu pandemic. And I'm joined today by John Barry. He is a professor at Tulane University's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine and author of The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. Jack Beatty also joins us. He's On Point's news analyst. And just consider this for a moment. By October of 1918, according to the CDC itself, uh, the flu pandemic killed an estimated 195,000 Americans in October of 1918 alone. Uh, Chicago, many other cities in the United States, began closing movie theaters and movie houses and schools. And New York City, for example, in October of 1918, reported a 40% decline in shipyard productivity due to the flu. Of course, that was happening Uh, towards the tail end of the First World War. Well, let's listen for a moment to Anne Van Dyke and Elizabeth Strucheski. They are from Philadelphia, or were from Philadelphia, and they remembered how the flu ravaged their neighborhood. Oh, it was terrible, the flu. Yeah. They had so many died that they kept putting them in garages, that garage on Richmond Street. Oh, my gosh, he had a couple garages full yeah, of kids. Full of bodies. Bodies, bodies yeah. Well, uh, that uh, on Thompson and Allegheny, Shredda. Shredda, yeah, he had it, too. He used to get the people and take them out and pile them in the garage. And uh, people smelled something, and they notified him. Jerry, take the people out of Corfin and put them in the garage and get get it the coffin to somebody else. Yeah. And got paid for it. He lost license and all. Oh, I know. The smell had not yet run down through the alley. So they caught up with him. It was terrible. A lot of people, people used to oh, die. Yeah. Oh, they used to die. It was an yeah. awful disease. Those oral histories, courtesy of historian Charles Hardy, and Westchester University. John, this is one of the great lessons, right, that we must all draw from what happened in the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. And that's that's the various responses uh, in the United States between different cities. So can you tell us what Philadelphia did or didn't do that other places did? Well, because we were at war, uh, the national public health leaders basically lied to the uh, public. Uh, They said things like this is ordinary influenza by another name, or you have nothing to fear, proper precautions are taken, 
so forth and so on. This was echoed by local leaders in many cities, Philadelphia being a prime example. Uh, so they had a big Liberty Loan parade scheduled, which they declined to cancel, although all the medical community urged them to, and 48 hours later, uh, just not like clockwork, influenza exploded in the city. So there were like, what, 300,000, uh, was it 300,000 people who roughly, were ex- so, expected to come to this parade? Something like that. And, you know, the results were lethal. Uh, later, they did institute what we call social distancing and closed everything down, restaurants, churches, services. Uh, but it was too late because, because the virus had already uh, become widely disseminated in the city. Uh, and Philadelphia had one of the worst experiences in the in the pandemic, I think roughly fourteen thousand five hundred people in Philadelphia died. Uh, one of the lessons uh, is not just social distancing, but you have to implement the dis- these measures early. Uh, if you don't, if you wait until a lot of people are sick and it's widely disseminated, the virus, uh, it's it's way too late and it will not have significant impact. But if you do do it early, if you get widespread compliance, uh, these measures do work. Mm. Well, Jack, let me turn back to you here for a moment because um, I believe it was last week on the show that you, you made this comparison between Philadelphia's belated, extremely belated response in 1918 versus, what was it, St. Louis? Yes, St. Louis. Um, Philadelphia waited, uh, the interval between their social distancing policies was 14 days. St. Louis waited two days after its first case was reported. Uh, Philadelphia uh, uh, waited 14, and in in that period, as John said, they had that parade. And here's the dramatic difference in uh, St. Louis, which was did social distancing immediately, 20, 40, 48 hours. The death rate was 31 per 100,000 people. In Philadelphia, which waited 14 days, the death rate was 257 people per 100,000 population, nearly 10 times. Uh, it, it, what's frightening is to realize the United States today is more like Philadelphia than St. Louis. John, would you agree with that? Are we following a Philadelphia-esque track in 2020? Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, we do not have widespread compliance. I'm in New Orleans, which is one of the uh, hot spots, maybe the hottest spot in terms of rate of acceleration. Uh, Although we we have closed everything down here for the last week, uh, hopefully that will have some impact. We've all seen the photographs of the Florida beaches and and things like that. Uh, People need to take it seriously, and they need to take it seriously early. That's the tough part, that if they don't see a lot of people around them sick, then they think, why are we having to do this now? But that is the time that it's effective. Wow. Well, so about about, um, what different cities did here, I, I... I'm seeing that San Francisco, did it take a different track in terms of how, again, this is 1918, about how um, it was communicating about the threat of the influenza pandemic to the public? Well, and did, Fran- did it make a difference? It, uh, I think it made a big difference in how the city functioned. Uh, Philadelphia, the public health leaders, as I said, they were, they were basically lying 
outright uh, to the extent that when they finally closed schools, banned all public gatherings, including church services, you know, closed, you know, theaters, restaurants, bars. When they finally did this, one of the newspapers went so far as to say, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for alarm. Obviously, you know, people aren't that stupid. Uh, what happened in Philadelphia and elsewhere, which took where place, uh, authorities took this whole, uh, this uh, approach, people lost all faith in anything they were being told, and they really seemed to feel as if they were on their own entirely, completely isolated. Uh, and society even began to fray in Philadelphia and elsewhere. There were reports of people starving to death because no one had the courage to bring them food. Uh, San Francisco believed masks were going to work. And the mayor, the uh, all the business leaders, union leaders, uh, health professionals signed a joint statement, full page uh, in the newspapers, huge type said, wear a mask and save your life. Now, as it turns out, they thought the masks would do something. They did not. And, in fact, San Francisco had uh, fourth or fifth highest excess mortality in the country. However, the city functioned uh, when, you know, people were still afraid and had good reason to fear. Uh, but as a society, it, it worked. When, for example, teachers, uh, when the schools were closed, teachers volunteered as everything from ambulance drivers to telephone operators. They had the sense of community. And uh, that's important. You didn't have people starving to death in San Francisco. Um, I think mm. right now here, here in New Orleans, at least where I am in the French Quarter, you get that sense of community. Um, I still go out. I social distance, but I'll go for a walk. And, you know, see a neighbor whom I've actually never talked to before a few blocks away says, is there anything I need? Or even more to the point, my friend and neighbor, Kent Roby, is a dentist. You know, he went to his office, got all his masks and gloves, donated them to a hospital. But even more to the point, a dentist can perform a lot of medical procedures and take a burden off uh, other healthcare workers. So he's volunteering at a hospital to do the things that he's capable of doing. Right. And he's certainly not used to dealing with infectious diseases, but that kind of community spirit, you know, uh, mm. I sense that here in New Orleans. I hope that's the same way elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like what you're saying is that um, truthfulness and transparency from uh, leaders at a time like this can hopefully accelerate the kind of community response that we want and need to see to help control a pandemic. So, John and Jack, hang on for just a second. So let's go to let's go to a couple of calls here. Let's go to Lucia, who's calling from Shazy, New York. Lucia, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to um, mention my um, late grandfather. He was a uh, he was a, in the army in France during World War One, and he told me how when he came back home after the war, um, the dead soldiers had to be you know buried at sea. And uh, also there would be farmers up here in the North Country. Uh, you know, they lost so many members of their family and they ran out of coffins. They had to take the timbers off their barns to bury their relatives in. 
Um, and I do have a question. Um, I did see a program once about uh, that uh, the so-called Spanish flu really did come from uh, Iowa, and it was our troops that took that flew over to Europe. Uh, does Jack know anything about this? Well, actually, I think John Barry is the is the man to oh. turn that question yeah. to, and and he actually yeah. he answered it a little bit earlier because he was talking about right. the Kansas right. theory. But Lucia, thank you for that call. Uh, John, did you want to just clarify a little just for a second? Because it seems like Lucia uh, didn't hear your answer, okay. that it may not be well, from the, Kansas. Right. There there was that hypothesis. I advanced it myself, but I've backed away from it because there's been so much scientific research done since uh, I came up with mine. I've, I think it's more likely China, uh, but it still could be the – as far as the coffins, almost every city in the country, in fact, everyone that I know of, uh, did in fact run out of coffins. Uh, and one of the, they they were actually reusing them. They'd have a funeral, bury the body, take the coffin, and reuse it in many places. Yeah, I mean, in the oral history you heard earlier from Philadelphia, that's what um, Anne and Elizabeth were talking about about a, a caretaker or an undertaker reusing coffins uh, in Philadelphia. Well, Lucia, thank you so much for your call. Let's go to Paul, who's calling from Story City, Iowa. Paul, you're on the air. Well, hello. And I'm a radio person myself. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you. Well, Paul, this is I, a, I, 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 am, I would have been able to guess that off the first hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm calling with a historical tidbit, a footnote. If you read Omar Bradley's autobiography, he was part of the class that was called the class that the stars fell on in West Point. Eisenhower and people like that who became luminaries in World War II. But at the time of the flu epidemic, he was stuck here in Iowa at Camp Dodge in Des Moines. And, of course, he thought his career was over because to advance in the Army, it's very important to have a combat command if there's a war on. It was the lowest part of his life, and he spent most of his time writing condolence letters to next of kin because uh, corpses were stacked in boxes right outside the mess hall. So... Wow. That's just a little tidbit I threw in there since you're talking about 1918. Well, Paul, thank you so much for that t- that tidbit and uh, for gracing the airwaves with your dulcet oh. tones once again, Paul. Thank you so much. Jack, Omar Bradley? Omar Bradley, who was yeah. the number two man to Eisenhower in World War II and who was known as the, the soldier's general. He was He was a warm and genial man. I remember a friend of mine told me uh, she was a little girl in New York City in the 1950s and was in a restaurant. And Omar and Mrs. Bradley came down and sat down. No one said anything. And they had their meal and they got up. And when they got up to leave, every man and woman and child in the restaurant stood up and applauded. Wow. Well, John Barry, let's turn back, if we can, to um, sort of what was happening between different cities and the federal government in 1918, 1919. Because I'm mindful of what you said earlier, that there were multiple waves, right, of of right. influenza over the course of about a year. Uh, uh, and what was what was the federal government doing at this time? I'm seeing here there's that uh, President Wilson maybe no. didn't even release a public statement at all about influenza? Nothing. He he never released any statement about influenza whatsoever. Uh, the federal government did next to nothing. Uh, it was, of course, we had a different society then, but everything was up to the local leadership. Um, and that's one reason why we got such varied responses. A, a lot of it is also just random luck. 
Uh, in some places, the virus seemed more lethal than others. The earlier cities that were hit were hit much harder. Uh, and the virus seemed to attenuate a little bit uh, over time. So if you got hit later, you, you were in better shape. And if you got sick in the same city later in the epidemic, uh, you were in better shape. And it wasn't because medical care improved. Medical care deteriorated. First, there was nothing they could do anyway uh, except supportive care. And, and second, you know, by later in the outbreak, particularly in the same city, uh, medical care was totally exhausted and overwhelmed. And, uh, so, so the virus was the chief determinant uh, of what was going mm-hmm. on then. I mean, could we say for a moment that uh – in 1918, if there were any excuse for the lack of a federal response, it was that there was a world war. The Great War was going on. I mean, is that is that right. even a legitimate line of thinking? Well, Wilson had, you know, an unbelievable single focus. Everything he was, you know, was a strange character, uh, but the war was everything to him even to the extent when uh, medical staff advised that he stop shipping troops to Europe during the pandemic because, you know, ships were almost floating coffins. And he said that, no, that was, you know, part of war if you die on the front line or you die on the ship. But then the medical staff said, well, at least how about shipping troops from camps where the disease had already passed through the camp because they did have likely some immunity. And, and, and in fact, he wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't change the schedule or order the general staff to change the schedule, which should have done that on its own, but they didn't. Uh, then, of course, Wilson did get the disease uh, during the peace conference. Uh, and one of the unusual uh, complications of this disease was uh, uh, had mental impacts uh, and I hear the music playing, but it definitely affected Wilson. Maybe if we have time, we can talk about that. I would love to talk about it. Yes, I would, because the idea that the president of the United States was delirious with flu as the world was trying to negotiate a peace at the end of World War One is a story we want to hear. So John Barry and Jack Beatty stand by. We are talking about lessons learned from the 1918 global flu pandemic. We'll be right back. This is On Point. is a sports show that tells stories about real people, everyday athletes, lifelong fans, and even... I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you can call me Kareem, please. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We are talking about lessons learned from the 1918-1919 global flu pandemic. And John Barry, before the break, you were telling us how President Woodrow Wilson... He might have he had the flu uh, when he was trying to negotiate uh, the the peace treaty for the end of World War One. Uh, quite definitely, uh, it was rampant in Paris at the time. He had one hundred three hundred four degree temperature, violent coughing, and I started to say one of the unusual complications of influenza was uh, mental disorder. Even to the extent that the people Oliver Sacks wrote about in the Awakening. Uh, 
very strong hypothesis that they had suffered from uh, influenza. There was a disease called encephalitis lethargica, uh, which occurred after influenza a few years later and then disappeared, a sequel to influenza. And uh, Wilson got it. He had been standing absolutely firm in the peace conference uh, prior to getting sick. After he got sick, people were saying that they had never seen him like that. He was paranoid. He uh, couldn't remember uh, an hour later what had been discussed an hour before. He was physically weak. Uh, and in that uh, frame, he went back into a room with you know just a handful of other leaders, particularly Clemenceau, whose nickname was the tiger and was much more forceful. And Wilson ended up caving in and abandoning wow. basically all the principles that supposedly the U.S. had gone to war for. Wow. Uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes called him the greatest fraud on earth. Uh, so, you know, might he have caved in regardless? Uh, you know, it, it's possible. Well, let me just uh, turn to Jack Beatty about this because, Jack, quite, it's quite stunning uh, to, to contemplate, to think that perhaps the flu it was a factor, at least in the far from perfect, the imperfect peace that was achieved at Versailles. Yes, and to think that it, it lived on in such a poisonous way because uh, Wilson, uh, the, the Germans had surrendered, reached the armistice on the basis of his 14-point peace plan, which was a fairly generous, uh, cl- uh, you know, uh, peace and uh, with his giving way, giving way, giving way at Versailles, the peace got tougher and tougher and tougher on Germany. And the tougher it got, the more certain it, would, it, it built in the backlash to the peace of Versailles, to uh, the armistice, to November 1918, the backlash that, that really the Nazi party was, uh, was, was, was built on. Uh, so the harsh peace, occupation of the Rhineland, the you know indemnities, the reparations, the war guilt clause, all of those things uh, uh, were what poisoned the well of the peace. Hmm. Wow. Well, let's turn back to listening to one more just brief oral history from um, an American who witnessed the 1918 flu pandemic. We heard from Philadelphia. We heard a little from Montana. This is Kentucky coal miner Tamus Bartley, and he remembered how the flu pandemic ravaged the coal camps he used to work at. It's the saddest looking time then that ever you saw in your life. Yeah, eight nineteen eighteen flu, and uh, when I'd get over there, I'd ride my horse and and go over there in the evening. I'd stay with my brother about three hours and do what I could to help him. And every one of them was in the bed, and sometimes Dr. Preston would come while I was there. He's the doctor. And he said, I'm trying to save their lives, but I'm afraid they ain't going to. And they're so bad off. And, and every, nearly every porch, every porch that I'd look at had but have a casket box to sitting on it. And men are digging graves as hard as they could, and the mines had to shut down. There wasn't a mine. There wasn't a. They wasn't a miner running or a lump of coal running nowhere. Stayed that away for about six weeks. 
That oral history, courtesy of the University of Kentucky Library Oral History Project. Now, John, the reason why well, I want to go, go ahead, I was John. I say, minors, you know, different demographic groups suffered differently. First, we should make the point that in 1918, the people who died were young. Yeah. Over two-thirds of deaths were people between 18 and 50. The elderly, people over 65, actually escaped almost untouched. Uh, well over 90% of the excess mortality was people under 65. So obviously there had been a similar virus in their youth, which gave them natural immunity. Uh, minors, over 6% of the entire population, I'm not talking case fatality, 6% of all the minors aged 18 to 50 died. So if you were a minor, you're <laughs> in factory workers, uh, over 3%, of the entire population of factory workers uh, in that age bracket died. Mm. Again, probably no social distancing and so forth and so on, not great ventilation maybe. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, pregnant women, their studies range from 21% to 71% case fatality among pregnant women. Uh, so it's somewhat of a similar situation today. If you have an underlying condition, pregnancy would would qualify. Uh, you know, if you have a problem with your lung, obviously underlying condition, uh, very dangerous situation, uh, you really need to yeah. social distance and, and honor the various advice from public health people. So, John, here's one of the other things that I take from uh, Tamus Bartley's oral history there. And that is, you know, for example, he's saying he could see the evidence of the, the pandemic with his own eyes and at the same time, like all work shut down um, at the the coal camps he, he was working at. Um, and so, you know, here here's what I wonder. At, at the same time, as you had mentioned before, the federal government kept, you know, they either weren't talking about the flu pandemic because they were doing all they could to keep up morale regarding the First World War. Um, uh, and so all these, like, rosy reports from the federal government ultimately backfired, it sounds like, what, what you're saying. And so... Is one of the big lessons here from the 1918 pandemic is that we need facts and truth from from leaders, and that and that if we get straight facts and the truth, that 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 can help us lead us down the the right decision making path. I mean, you, absolutely. You know, I think people can deal with reality, however harsh it may be. Uh, if you go to a monster movie, a horror movie, uh, it's always most scary before you see the monster or the horror, you know, because your imagination is much more powerful than any reality. Uh, and once the monster appears on the screen, it becomes concrete and it's limited. Uh, if, if you give people the straight facts, which in fact is what in Singapore, the, the head of the government there, and Singapore has controlled this disease through discipline, social distancing, all sorts of various testing, uh, and yet they have not closed restaurants. They have not closed schools. Uh, similar things for, you know, careers hadn't shut down the economy, and yet they've controlled it. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, same thing. Uh -huh. they've, they've been upfront with people, told them what they need to do, uh, uh, testing, isolation, uh, contact tracing, 
you know, all these things uh, have not yet happened in the United States. John, I mean, let me just can, can, can I just step in here for a second because because yeah. you're getting towards something that that I, I, I want to um, explore for a minute with you because it was back in what 2005 that you served as an expert on a CDC panel that helped create a pandemic preparedness plan. Well, 2005. Well, it wasn't actually CDC, but uh, yeah, after when bird flu surfaced, uh, then the federal government started putting together. Uh, preparedness plans. Okay. I was in those early working groups. Uh, we did have some people there from CDC, but it was Got you know, it. a lot of okay. sort of like a sort of cross agency federal group. Okay, and but then yeah, and a lot of outside people. Yeah, got it. So you were a subject matter expert on this, and you told the New York Times that you felt like your job in two thousand five, two thousand six, on this panel was to quote beat the the tell the truth, tell the truth drum. Um, did that message get through then? And has Absolutely. that? And did it get? It, is, are we following that it, that now, though? Yeah. No. I mean, it is written into every pandemic plan. It's in, written into the federal pandemic plan. It's written into the plan of every state. But the problem has always been someone has to, in authority, has to get up and execute that plan. And unfortunately. Uh, obviously, for the first uh, six or eight weeks of this, uh, the president was minimizing it. Then, uh, roughly a week ago, he, uh, he got deadly serious. I think I guess it was a week ago Monday, although it seems like much longer, uh, and took the approach that I would have wished he had taken earlier. But then he, you know, begins to stray. Uh, and of course, you have uh, some members of the media who were also minimizing it, suggesting practically that it was a democratic plot to undermine the administration, uh, going almost mm. that far. Uh, so, as I said earlier, for anything to be successful, you need to have widespread uh, compliance yes. with the various guidelines. And going back to 1918, uh, army those army camps. Ninety nine out of one hundred and twenty imposed various quarantine measures. Twenty one camps did nothing, and there was no statistical difference between the camps that imposed the quarantine and the camps that did nothing, because over a period of time, there was too much leakage. They failed to discipline themselves inside the camps. The person who did that study didn't just do a statistical look at them. He actually was puzzled by that result and did a more detailed study about how camps actually implemented the recommendations on quarantine mm -hmm. and discovered that only a very few camps really carried them out uh, diligently. And in those camps, there was significant benefit. However, there were so few of them in the larger sample size, we're talking about a couple of million people, uh, soldiers, uh, the, the, the benefits were lost statistically, but they were real in right. those camps. Right. Now, army camps are a lot different from a society. You had the barracks and so forth. It's very, very difficult uh, to, to do any social distancing in there. But here we do have an opportunity. We're obviously not, not as close together as you are in a barracks. Uh, but you need widespread yeah. compliance. So, John, if I may, it sounds like 
the, there's like three pillars of lessons to be learned from 1918. Uh, one is the paramount importance of truth and facts from public leaders. The second is the incredible importance of uh, physical or social di- social distancing and the difference that can make. And the third is, is the first two help lead to the public compliance. And those three together can save lives. I've got about 30 seconds left from you, John. Do you feel like we can achieve those three pillars now with coronavirus? Well, we're in a race because uh, testing is important to isolate the uh, people who are sick and uh, apply contact tracing. Uh, And if we can get the tests out there fast enough to really execute that, then we're in a much better position. If we're not, social distancing will still help. Uh, but they, we won't be able to gain the kind of edge over these things that they did in Korea or Singapore yeah. or Hong Kong. Well, John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History and a professor at Tulane's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Well, Jack, we just got a couple of minutes left here. This was an absolutely fascinating hour, and I'm going to leave the la- last thought to you. What should we take away? Well, I'm going to give you a taste of a, of, a, of, a, of a sort of picture of 1918. This is from a Catherine Ann Porter story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. She was a young reporter in 1918 in Denver. She fell ill of influenza. She was, they was, her colleagues were so convinced that she was de- going to die that they set her obituary Pale Horse, Pale Rider is about Miranda. She's, she's stricken with the flu. Uh, her lover, Adam, comes to visit her and nurses her. He goes back to his army base. She wakes on Armistice Day to find that Adam, that she has lived, but Adam has, dead, has died. And she thinks at once he was there beside her, invisible but urgently present, a ghost but more alive than she was, the last intolerable cheat of her heart. For knowing it was false, she still clung to the lie, the unpardonable lie of her bitter desire. She said, I love you, and stood up trembling, trying by the mere act of her will to bring him to sight before her. If I could call you up from the grave, I would, she said. If I could see your ghost, I would say, I believe. I believe, she said aloud. Oh, let me see you once more. The room was silent, empty. The shade was gone from it. Struck away by the sudden violence of her rising and speaking aloud, she came to herself as if out of sleep. No more war, no more plague, only the dazed silence that follows the ceasing of the heavy guns. Noiseless houses with the shades drawn, empty streets, the dead cold light of tomorrow. Now there would be time for everything. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, joining us as always from Hanover, New Hampshire. Jack, thank you so very much for being with us this hour. Thank you, Magna. Well, folks, as we wrap up today, I want to let you know that tomorrow our coronavirus coverage, of course, continues, and we are going to be talking about kindness. So have you seen or been part of an act of kindness in your community? Um, maybe you're a part of a neighborhood sing-along or making uh, masks or items to help medical workers in your neighborhood. We want to hear from you. So leave us a voicemail at 617 353 
617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. And we're going to go out with Over There. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.